and welcome back to the Room Madness Podcast, the place for everyone who is crazy about rheumatology. My name is David Leverance, and I am a rheumatologist specializing in medical education, corny jokes, quality improvement, and sharing my over-exuberant enthusiasm about rheumatology with others. I'm so glad you're here. In our previous episode, we gave a brief explainer or update about what Room Madness is. So if you're new to Room Madness and still trying to figure out how to submit a bracket or what this whole tournament is about, please go back and listen to episode nine for a brief catch up on what's going on. You're also welcome to go back and listen to the previous episodes where the Room Madness leadership team tossed around our own ideas about the teams in the bracket and how we think they might do. But if you're listening to this episode, you are like me in that you really want to know what the scouting reports say about these teams. Over 40 rheumatology fellows from 14 different rheumatology fellowship programs from around the United States have collaborated to put together scouting reports reviewing each of these teams, and they are amazing. They are so fun to listen to. They're so fun to read. And we are essentially going to be reading them aloud on this podcast because we know you're busy and it might be difficult to sit down and read 16 scouting reports. So hopefully if we present them in audio form, you'll have a chance to digest that information and make some informed decisions as you put together your bracket predictions. As a brief reminder, brackets predictions are accepted all the way through March 26th after which you cannot submit a bracket anymore. So please be sure to submit your brackets by March 26th and then enjoy the tournament starting on March 27th. In this episode, we're going to be reading the scouting reports from the bottom right-hand corner of the bracket. So if you've looked at the bracket, you know that there's different regions comprised of different teams. And in the bottom right-hand corner of that bracket, we have some rheumatoid arthritis teams and some gout teams. And we're going to be reviewing the scouting reports of those teams in this episode. So we are going to start with prime cells in rheumatoid arthritis. This scouting report was put together by the fellows at the University of Colorado. So thank you so much to all those fellows out at Colorado who put together this amazing scouting report. This team is based primarily on the article by Dr. Orange et al., on RNA identification of prime cells predicting rheumatoid arthritis flares. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020. So here's the topic overview. Rheumatoid arthritis, like many systemic autoimmune disorders, is characterized by periods of disease exacerbation and quiescence. Despite advances in our understanding of disease pathophysiology, little is known about the immunologic drivers of disease flares in rheumatoid arthritis. Previous studies have utilized cross-sectional analyses of rheumatoid arthritis patients with various disease duration and clinical disease activity. This study offers unique insight into the immunologic changes, including so-called prime cells or pre-inflammatory mesenchymal cells that occur directly preceding, during, and following disease flares by utilizing a longitudinal design of four patients over years of intensive monitoring with frequent acquisition of transcriptional profiles and patient-reported clinical data. A major strength of this paper lies in its unique methodology, as it generates detailed immunologic data that can be tightly correlated with concurrent clinical disease findings. So the implications for patients, providers, and researchers. 
on current implications. The fellows at University of Colorado write that this paper describes immunologic changes in a small number of rheumatoid arthritis patients, just four. As such, applicability to wider populations, like seropositive versus seronegative rheumatoid arthritis patients, early rheumatoid arthritis versus established RA, on conventional synthetic DMARDs versus biologic DMARD therapy, is uncertain. The paper generates data that contributes to our understanding of immunologic underpinnings of rheumatoid arthritis flares, which can be helpful in patient education and counseling. Most importantly, this paper describes a methodology, proof of concept for the use of longitudinal transcriptomics, that can be utilized in the investigation of other autoimmune diseases characterized by disease flares like lupus, vasculitis, etc., and can be utilized in studies investigating preclinical disease periods and the transition to overt clinical findings, like pre-rheumatoid arthritis or incomplete lupus. Getting to future implications. Most immediately, this paper describes a clinical measurement tool that could provide educational benefit for patients and providers through explanation of how a flare may be happening, though not necessarily yet why. It holds potential in terms of personalized and precision medicine in the assessment and treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, and can be utilized in different stages of disease and perhaps even provide indication of transition between phases of disease, i.e. preclinical autoimmunity to clinical rheumatoid arthritis. Additionally, by understanding how flares may be occurring, this can further inform the process of identifying targets for novel therapies, a development that impacts both researchers and clinicians. This paper may highlight a new therapeutic target for treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, prime cells as the target. So will prime cells win its first round matchup? They write, prime cells certainly measure up against its competitor, the R4-RA trial. The latter is less adaptable in future practice compared to prime as it relies on synovial biopsy. While the methodology described in both papers can be considered invasive, blood draws are certainly cheaper, less labor-intensive, and more tolerable for patients when considering personalized medicine as opposed to acquiring tissue samples. Now, could Prime win it all? They do write, Prime will have a very steep hill to climb to win it all. On one hand, the paper demonstrates the power of words, authors coining the term Prime cells, and a novel methodologic approach. Anointing these cells as prime cells provides a better hook for readers than something along the lines of a unique transcription profile found in CD45-CD31-PDPN positive synovial fibroblasts immediately precedes RA flares. On the other hand, several competitors in the field offer immediate changes to clinical practice, and hence are likely to win out over the delayed gratification of prime. They then list their references. I thought this was a great scouting report, very fair and balanced. I'm really excited about this team personally. I know a lot of people are. I think it's incredible science. And I really appreciate the effort from the University of Colorado fellows putting together this really fantastic scouting report. Next up is its competitor in the first round, synovial B-cells in therapy response, or the R4RA study. This was written by the Vanderbilt University Medical Center Rheumatology Fellowship. And this is based on an article by Humby et al. called Rituximab versus Tocilizumab in Anti-TNF Inadequate Responder Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis, R4-RA, a 16-week outcomes of a stratified, biopsy-driven, multi-center, open-label, phase 4 randomized controlled trial. 
This is published in The Lancet uh, very recently in 2021. So here's the topic overview. R4RA by Humby et al. in Lancet 2021 is a biopsy-driven, multi-center, phase four, randomized controlled trial that pits rituximab versus tocilizumab against each other in 161 patients with rheumatoid arthritis who have failed DMARD and TNF inhibitor therapy, either by intolerance or lack of efficacy. The patients are stratified by histology on synovial biopsy and RNA sequencing on synovial biopsy as either being B-cell rich or B-cell poor. This paper presents the 16-week outcomes, of which the primary outcome is the difference in clinical disease activity index, or the CDI, by 50% or more, CDI 50%. Other secondary endpoints were examined as well and include disease activity measures like the DAS-ESR, etc. Functional outcomes like the HAC, as well as quality of life outcomes like the SF36. Ultimately, the authors show no statistically significant difference in the achievement of the primary endpoint in patients who were characterized as B-cell poor by histologic characterization. Rituximab group with 17 or 45% of 38 patients, and the tocilizumab group uh, with 23 or 56% of 41 patients, difference being about 11% with a p-value of 0.31. However, there was a difference in patients characterized as B-cell poor by molecular RNA sequencing of the synovial sample, the rituximab group 12 patients of 23 or 36% versus the tocilizumab group 20 of 32 patients or 63% with a difference of 26% and a p-value of 0.035. Occurrence of adverse events and serious adverse events were not significantly different between treatment groups. So getting to the implications for patients, providers, and researchers. Current implications. Current treatment patterns in patients with RA rely on historical availability, insurance access, and relative contraindications. Historical response rates are limited in rheumatoid arthritis and could be optimized with a more targeted, personalized approach. There is an associated cost as well as side effect potential with multiple medications in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. R4RA provides that personalized approach, albeit with invasive testing. This is the first biopsy-driven trial in rheumatoid arthritis to show a differential treatment response. This paper confirms the translational suspicion that there are different endotypes of RA with corresponding differential responses to therapy. Researchers will continue to flesh this out and potentially find a less invasive means to sort these patients. Future implications are as follows. It is not hard to see the future of a paper like this. Precision rheumatology. Our oncologic colleagues have been doing this for years, but the potential in selecting on the, fir- on the front end a treatment that will have more benefit in the patient in front of us is really quite exciting. So will R4RA win its first round matchup? They write that R4RA stands a good chance to advance past its first round as its competitor, Prime Cells in RA by Orange et al. in New England Journal in 2020, is further from the bedside and does not suggest a therapeutic intervention, and thusly cannot cannot close a game down the stretch. R4RA needs to watch out, though, as the prime illustration in Table 5 is sure to be a long-term teaching tool for future rheumatology fellows. 
So could R4RA win it all? As exciting as the paper is, it will be a challenge for R4RA to win it all. While it might progress in the early rounds, it will find it difficult to overcome the powerhouses present in the anchor-associated vasculitis and lupus bracket. R4RA's moneyball-like approach in determining RA treatment therapy is clever, as it provides providers a biomarker to specifically guide therapy. This paper also adds to the few head-to-head trials we have in rheumatoid arthritis to help guide therapy. Ultimately, though, synovial biopsy is invasive, and there will be questions about applicability of this trial to current care paradigms, as well as limitations in it being an open-label trial. So once again, a really fantastic scouting report, fair and balanced. Um, I think it's great that both the um, Colorado fellows and the Vanderbilt fellows think their team is likely going to win in the first round. Um, I think it's going to be a close matchup. And I think both of these teams are really exciting and may go pretty far in the tournament. So we'll have to see. All right, moving on to the gout regions. The first team in the gout region is the FAST study, and this was written by the fellows at the University of Chicago Fellowship Program, led by Dietam Sagan, Emily Penninger, uh, Larnie Quimson, Marco Lopez-Velasquez, and uh, Kaiko Ko. And this, uh, this scouting report is based on the article Bob McKinsey uh, et al. and the FAST study group titled Long-Term Cardiovascular Safety of Febuxostat Compared with Allopurinol in Patients with Gout, a multi-center perspective randomized open-label non-inferiority trial published in The Lancet in 2020. So the topic overview. Gout is the most common inflammatory arthritis affecting 4% of adults. Hyperuricemia, a feature of gout, is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. There are currently only two FDA-approved xanthine oxidase inhibitors for urate-lowering therapy in gout, allopurinol and febuxostat. Initial trials of gout comparing febuxostat with placebo-slash-allopurinol suggested a higher rate of cardiovascular events with febuxostat. In this population with an already increased risk for cardiovascular disease, these results led to a black box warning for cardiovascular events with febuxostat and a change in recommendations for urate-lowering therapy in gout treatment guidelines. The FAST study is a large study conducted in Europe to assess the cardiovascular safety of febuxostat compared with allopurinol. The study was prospective, randomized, open-label, blinded endpoint, non-inferiority, multi-center trial of febuxostat versus allopurinol. Eligible patients were 60 years or older, had gout, required urate-lowering therapy, and at least one cardiovascular risk factor. Patients who had a myocardial infarction or stroke in the previous six months or class 3-4 heart failure were excluded from this study. A total of 6,128 patients were randomized to receive allopurinol versus febuxostat. The primary outcome was a composite of hospitalization for non-fatal MI or biomarker-positive acute coronary syndrome, non-fatal stroke, or death due to cardiovascular events. The study showed that febuxostat was non-inferior to allopurinol with respect to the primary outcome, as well as secondary outcomes, including cardiovascular death, all-cause death, hospitalization for non-fatal MIs or biomarker-positive acute coronary syndrome, and hospitalization for heart failure or transient ischemic attack based on both intention to treat and on uh, on treatment analyses. Uh, 
So what are the implications for patients, providers, and researchers? On current implications, given the frequency of gout, increased risk of cardiovascular in these events in these patients, and limited urate-lowering therapy options, the clinical implications of the FAST study are undoubtedly large. The results of this study inform both patients and physicians regarding the cardiovascular safety of febuxostat compared to allopurinol. These results are particularly helpful in choosing a urate-lowering therapy for patients with gout who have cardiovascular risk factors and patients for whom allopurinol is contraindicated or not tolerated. Regarding future implications, the FAST study uh, provides a high-quality evidence for the FDA to consider removing the black box warning of febuxostat and for a change in future gout treatment guidelines. So, will the FAST study win its first round matchup? We believe, they write, that the FAST trial will easily win its first round matchup against the ACR 2020 gout guidelines, as the trial actually helps to clarify the uncertainties regarding cardiovascular safety of febuxostat and provides important results to inform newer gout guidelines with more robust evidence. The ACR guidelines may make some runs with a a barrage of different shots from their numerous recommendations of various degrees of evidence. However, the analytics strongly favor high-efficiency shots near the basket, which the FAST trial provides with its high-quality data and straight-to-answer-the-question approach. So could the FAST trial win it all? The FAST trial can really win it all given the impact of its results. There are certainly heavy challenges that can come from novel therapies for systemic diseases with their jaw-dropping moves. Nonetheless, when it comes to efficiency and volume of shots made, the FAST trial can score high on both counts as a large randomized study that can affect countless gout patients with cardiovascular risks. All right, so University of Chicago fellows really bringing it with the FAST study. They are really writing a rave review of the FAST study here um, with um, uh, really some excellent implications on a large population of patients. And I really appreciated the write-up. So the FAST study is competing against the uh, newly released ACR gout guidelines. And the scouting report reviewing these guidelines was written by Donna Joes and Marvin Cabling from the Loma Linda University Rheumatology Fellowship Program. And this is based on uh, Fitzgerald et al.'s article of the 2020 American College of Rheumatology Guideline for the Management of Gout, published in Arthritis Care and Research in 2020. So here's their topic overview. In May 2020, the American College of Rheumatology debuted the new guidelines for the management of gout. This latest set is a direct answer to criticisms on the prior guidelines released in 2012, where there were low-quality evidence supporting some of its recommendations, some of its core recommendations, excuse me, especially for treat-to-target strategy. This update reflects new data from recent studies and input from a panel of experts and patients. Gout is the most common inflammatory arthritis, affecting 9.2 million adults in the United States. Its incidence has doubled over the last 20 years. Even though the underlying etiology of the disease is well elucidated and appropriate therapies exist, there are still significant gaps of care. The overall management of gout remains suboptimal, with a chronic underutilization and poor patient adherence to the drugs that lower the uric acid burden. 
It is the hope of the ACR that the new guidelines would help improve gout management in our patients. The 2020 ACR guidelines has 42 recommendations, including 16 that are considered strong recommendations. The guidelines feature recommendations for the following key areas. Indications for urate-lowering therapy, approaches to the initiation and management of urate-lowering therapy, management of gout flares, asymptomatic hyperuricemia, and management of concomitant drugs and lifestyle modification. Now, the scouting report then lists 11 of notable recommendations. I am not going to read those for the sake of brevity, so you will have to go to the scouting report and read those 11 if you want, uh, but I would encourage you to do so. So we're going to skip now down to implications for patients, providers, and researchers. Current implications. Gout is certainly an old disease with most clinicians confident of its management. However, in reality, most of us can learn a few more things in caring for our patients with gout. It is easy to dismiss gout, either intentionally or not, as unimportant or easy to manage. Yet, the data on the quality indicators reveal that most of us do a suboptimal job in caring for our patients with gout. The new guidelines should serve as a reminder, if not a wake-up call, to up our game and improve the care we provide for our patients. The strengths of this new set of guidelines lie in the team effort and collaboration between researchers, field experts, and patient representatives. The voices and preferences of patients' cost of therapy have been reflected against emerging evidence, resulting in a robust set of new recommendations. It now includes an expanded indication for the use of urate-lowering therapy with greater emphasis on the use of allopurinol as the first choice for gout therapy. A treat-to-target strategy with a serum urate of less than 6 is strongly recommended. This was recommended in the 2012 guidelines, but now re-emphasized based on newer and stronger evidence. Wider testing for the presence of HLA-B5801 is recommended for certain populations due to higher risks of developing allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome. Furthermore, bonus inclusions in the guidelines are some practical points, such as dietary modifications, guidance on how to manage common drugs that may affect serum urate levels, like hydrochlorothiazide, losartan, vitamin C, and aspirin, and the use of ice compress as an adjunct flare therapy. Future implications. While the new guidelines are comprehensive, there are still questions that have left to be unanswered. We look forward to the next iteration of ACR guidelines in the future answering these questions. Number one, what's the best strategy for titrating urate lowering therapy? Number two, what's the optimal serum uric acid threshold for patients with more severe gout? And number three, would there be a different serum urate target based on patients' race, sex, or comorbidities? Number four, would prolonged and profound hyperuricemia be safe, especially since there has been a link to low serum urate less than three with neurodegenerative disorders? And number five, would urate-lowering therapy be beneficial in patients with asymptomatic hyperuricemia and comorbidities such as cardiovascular disease, CKD, or hypertension? So, will the 2020 ACR guidelines for the management of gout win its first-round matchup against the FAST study? They write, yep, just a simple yes. No question, the ACR gout guidelines will beat its first-round opponent, the FAST trial. While the FAST trial is certainly important uh, tackling the risks or non-risks of febuxostatin gout, the comprehensive nature of the ACR guidelines and its wide implication in patient care will most surely knock the FAST trial off its feet. 
However, the fast trial may possibly pull a fast one and swoop a win uh, swoop a win when you consider how the trial found non-inferiority of febuxostat over allopurinol for risk of cardiovascular events. This result contrasts with those of the CARES trial, which is one of the uh, which was one of the evidence used to conditionally recommend other urate lowering therapies over febuxostat in patients with cardiovascular disease. So, could the 2020 ACR guideline for the management of gout win at all? Optimistically speaking, it is possible. The 16 strong recommendations stated in the new guidelines were based on the gold standard randomized controlled trials that compared treat-to-target regimens with usual care. These higher quality studies also detail recommendations on lifestyle modifications and use of concurrent medications, which together provides much needed information on how to better manage gout to improve quality of care for our patients. Other studies, such as avacapan and belimumab for lupus nephritis, provide new and exciting treatment options and might have a fair chance of winning at all. But the extensive data and quality behind the new 2020 ACR guidelines for gout management is unbeatable. This new guideline could pave the way to close the care, to close the care gap in gout patients with the assistance of evidence-based medicine. Okay. Well, that was also an amazing scouting report. Uh, It seems that everyone writing a scouting report is extremely excited about their team. I do appreciate uh, the uh, fellows having some um, fairness in thinking about their team. And, uh, you know, are they really going to win? How would they match up against other teams throughout the tournament? But uh, really some strong reviews of these teams. Um, So thank you very much to all of the fellows at the University of Colorado, Vanderbilt, University of Chicago, and Loma Linda for putting together really awesome scouting reports on these topics. Um, I know it was just one voice reading these, and I hope that this was helpful for you to get the review that you need to fill out your bracket. Again, you're also more than welcome to read these on the website. Um, So really looking forward to the conversation and see y'all out there.